Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. I got a good one for you today. I don't know about you, but I love interviewing power couples. Couples that both have an individual calling and yet have come together. And and this one today was a gift. You may recognize the name Carrie Newhoff. Carrie produces a lot of content. He hosts Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, is influencing hundreds of thousands of leaders across the country, especially ministry leaders. And, and God's really given him a ton of influence in this season. But his wife, Tony, is awesome. She's an author, just came out with a book called Before You Split. And she actually is a divorce lawyer. So I've never interacted with a divorce lawyer before, but she brings some really practical insights on some of the stresses on marriages. COVID and 2020 in general was brutal on marriages, but they actually go back to a moment in their own life where Carrie hit burnout and where she hit depression. They talk about how they ministered to one another during that time, how they cared for one another, and ultimately how their marriage took a turn. And now they have just a ton of hope to offer us during those empty nester years, and they can look back to some wisdom and some insight. And this was vulnerable. It was authentic. You can tell their friends, just an incredible couple. So hope you guys enjoy this interview with Tony and Carrie Newhoff. Well, Team Newhoff, thanks for uh, stopping by today. <laughs> hey, thank Glad you so here. much for having us. So total power couple. I mean, you guys, you guys are awesome. Got some, some really cool things in both of you guys, but here we are in January. Tony, congratulations on getting your book out into the world. Well, thank you. Thanks. It's a little bit like pushing a boulder up a hill sometimes, but I'm super excited now that it's there. <laughs> it's too late. It's it's out into the world as we release <laughs> this podcast. And why don't you guys give us just a little bit of background uh, on your family? So kids, how long you guys have been married? We'll we'll dig into the dirty stuff in a little bit, all right? But just just start with the kind of basics. Well, we've been married 30 years now, probably 30 and a half, actually. So uh, yeah, we've been around the block once or twice. Um, Grateful to be at this point. Uh, We've got two sons who are grown, 24 and 28. Uh, We've loved spending time with them. And yeah, we live north of Toronto. We've been in the same community for decades now and uh, leading a local church, uh, Conexus. So Carrie, wanna Yeah, we met in law school. Uh we actually when you when you end up in a place like law school, you don't know a lot of people because everybody kind of disperses after undergrad. So I noticed Tony, uh I fell in love. She didn't, but uh, we eventually <laughs> well, eventually I did. We eventually she did. But <laughs> I noticed time. her before she noticed me. We started dating. We got married in the middle of law school and then had our uh, first child right after law. So uh, I was just in law very briefly for a year. You have practiced for a number of years, mm-hmm. mostly in a, in a variety of health law, but then also divorce law. And um, so anyway, yeah. And here we are all these years later. So 20, 20 years, I was lead pastor of a church that I started called Connexus Church. It had a couple of iterations. And then uh, last five years have been um, founding pastor and really focused on just helping people thrive in life and leadership. So do a podcast, write books, speak, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Carrie, so grateful for your ministry. Tony, really fun to see you live and really coming on the scene in so many ways. 
Um, Carrie only talks about you in a good way on the podcast, as as I've heard. So I expected, you know, an angel. Well, it's because she listens, right? She listens. So I'm going to get in trouble if if I do it otherwise. That's awesome. No, it's fun to see you guys together, you know, kind of laughing together, but also really launching this message into the world. Obviously, we need this message right now. Marriages are struggling. and um, Mm -hmm. But kind of zoom out for just a second. You're a family law mediator, former divorce attorney, what in the world does that look like day to day, Tony? Oh, well, being a, a divorce attorney is a challenging role. Uh, I'm not sure if you have any family lawyers or divorce attorneys in your circle, but it's a um, it's a it's both a, a technical and emotionally challenging area of the law um, because divorce is like palliative care for a relationship. So walking with people through that very difficult journey is, uh, it takes, uh, takes a, a degree of professionalism, but also engages your heart and, um, it, you know, presents it with challenges. Definitely. Um, it's not a short process, you know, people want it to go quickly, but, um, it, it normally can't because there are so many important details that have to be attended to. So, yeah, day to day, it's um, it's challenging and rewarding. And how did you find your way into that specific niche of law? Yeah, uh, I, I love that you asked that question because I originally felt strongly called to advocate on behalf of kids. Uh, but in Ontario, to practice children's law, you need to practice family law first. And so I went into family law intending to help people through a difficult time, um, help by um, approaching family law from a more collaborative um, perspective. I, I did practice collaborative law and did most of my work out of court, but some of my work was in the courtroom. And um, and I was committed to uh, walking through this process with my clients in the most peaceful way possible. Mm. All right, let's get personal, guys. Let's dig in a little bit. You say that your marriage went from that bad to this good. What was going on in your marriage? And of course, when did it begin to turn and shift? I'll just start. It was several years into our marriage, but I think once we landed uh, in in Oro, where we are now, in our early years, we were in Toronto. We lived in an apartment. Um, we had our first son while we were living in Toronto, and and that seemed those seemed to be easier years for us. But once we transitioned to moving north, um, Carrie, you took the three charges, three church charges, mm-hmm. as a student pastor. And uh, I was working part-time as a pharmacist at that point. I I have a background in pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So I actually practiced pharmacy while I was going through law school and I continued both through my career. So we ended up in busy, stressful, uh, you know, in with 2020 hindsight, overcommitted schedules, but really struggling with each other's conflict styles, um, emotionally, we just couldn't seem to get on the same page. And we just ended up in this negative downward spiral of conflict and messiness. What, what do you think, Carrie? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we didn't date a long time before we got married mm. because law school's a meat grinder. Like you really, it's, it's a lot of hustle, mm-hmm. uh, but we fell in love fast and we were both in our mid twenties. So it wasn't like we were exactly kids. So, 
uh, yeah, we got married when I was about 25. And then we spent five more years in Toronto, finishing up seminary, uh, living downtown, midtown. And then we moved up here to start ministry. And I would say, you know, the, that, that first decade was sort of in two different directions. While the churches were growing like crazy, uh, which was great. Like there were three very small churches that eventually would go on to become Connexus Church. But, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of success at work and then increasing tension at home. Um, which sort of led, our, our marriage got rough before I burned out, but that was sort of maybe the, the bottom of it mm-hmm. um, about 15 years ago. And, and I would say I, I was learning an awful lot about emotional intelligence, uh, how much I needed to grow. And, you know, you bring all that stuff home with you. So uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, that was, that sort of led to the uh, the turbine of, of, of challenges that we faced at yeah. home. Yeah. And, and can I also say that when we went to law school, we were, we both knew that we were sold out on following Jesus. Uh, you experienced your call to ministry while yep. we were still at law school before we were married. And so we were, we were a hundred percent on board with committing our lives to, leading a church, you know, leading people to discover Christ. The thing was, you know, people would sometimes look at me and say, well, it's different for you. You're a pastor's wife. But you have, when you come into a marriage and even start to pursue a calling with some issues, such as, you know, baggage, uh, maybe trauma from the past, um, being emotionally unprepared, but not being aware of it. You know, these problems don't just disappear when we accept a calling. And mm-hmm. and I think that was, those were some of the things that really tripped us up. And we we had that that tension of wanting so much to be faithful with this calling and getting so tripped up in our in our relationship with the conflict we couldn't seem to get rid of. Yeah, as Andy Stanley says, there's no marriage issues, just people issues. And so I showed up with people issues, you showed up with people issues, and, uh, you know, you get into this collision course. So so we got there. Yeah. Well, and you call it mud. We track into the marriage. I think that's being very diplomatic. I mean, it's crap mm-hmm. or worse <laughs> that we drag into our marriage. Uh, can you guys get personal? What What is some of that mud for each of you that you brought in the marriage that ended up causing some collision? Well, I'll I'll start with that. Uh, And and this took a long time to uncover, Alan. Uh, But I've had gone through uh, some trauma in my childhood, um, in my family of origin. My my dad had an anger problem and also a drinking problem. So my parents really tried to provide what we needed. Um, But I think the parts that were missing were... um, emotional connection, uh, really understanding, you know, not only how to recognize and manage one's own emotions, but how to, how to express them, how to respond to other people's emotions. It's a key learning, but we just didn't pick it up in our home. And I'm speaking for me in my home. Mm. And, um, you know, I, it, it took years to uncover this, but I think when we have those traumatic experiences, uh, the enemy does do it, do his work. And we have survival mechanisms that we adopt. 
and they help us as children to, you know, to get through, to survive, to still participate in life and move forward. Um, but they also sometimes come with a cost and come with hidden lies. So I discovered through Christian counseling and other ways that I, I held on to this belief that I'm better off alone which I can recognize now as a, as a really destructive hidden belief, um, but it was there. And uh, another one was my, my voice doesn't matter. Mm. And that's also, you know, one of those self-limiting beliefs that you really have to uncover and get rid of. So that was a journey. What would you say, Carrie? Yeah, I would say for me, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that kind of addictive uh, background, um, you know, that, that you did, but we all come in with stuff. So I, for me, I was a performance addict, I would say, that really mm-hmm. surfaced in my 30s. Nothing was ever big enough, good enough, strong enough, that kind of thing. And so that um, addiction, I think somewhere along the line, my wires got crossed and, you know, top performance equals love somehow. And of course, that's a hole you can never really fill. And marriage just exposes that. So I was never satisfied. I worked too many hours. Uh, The church could never be big enough. We could never be successful enough. And then I'm also an Enneagram 8. So I'm, uh, you know, there's a healthy side and an unhealthy side. Hopefully I'm trending toward healthy at this point. But, um, you know, there there were a lot of unhealth with that. I I didn't want to be controlled. I think you had control issues in a different way. I didn't want to be controlled. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we would really clash. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Tony, you know, it it was interesting because you see certain things in marriage that you don't see. Like Tony's got a very... Uh, gentle personality and and really, really sweet. But one of the reasons I married her, also a steel spine. Right. So you put that like you you push this woman and you're gonna you're gonna pay price. So uh, but I really respect that about her. And so I think you know the strength that gets redeemed in a personality can also, in its unredeemed form, cause a lot of problems. And so we sure. definitely both had had those challenges. And so I think it was a bit of a perfect storm. Um, yeah, you know, and then next, Tony, can you share your Enneagram number? I'm just kind of wondering the concoction here. Yes. So I'm a five, uh, otherwise known as the investigator and, uh, and, and also known as hidden, (laughs) (laughs) a five does tend to be private. Um, I would say, I would describe it as a scarcity mindset, although I don't think um, Ian Cron uses those words when when he talks about it. Um, but it's this this idea that I need to uh, be self sufficient. I need to gather up all the resources that I'm going to need to survive, so that I don't depend on anyone. Which, of course, sort of goes hand in hand with that I'm better off alone mm, lie. Sure. So, and my four, I have a four wing along with the five, so I can also be pretty dramatic. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. There you go. Carrie, I interrupted. What were you saying? Oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. So uh, the pastor's wife thing that you have, how did you handle those questions, some of that pressure that people put on? And then Carrie, I want to hear how you handle that for her uh, afterwards. Hmm. I am not going to say that I handled it terribly well, Alan, because 
I, I was there, like I was certainly was committed to our church and I uh, over volunteered in the first few years. Uh, I was, because we had three churches, I was playing all kinds of roles in all three churches and, and that was not necessarily healthy, but we wanted so badly to, um, to help the people in our community that um, that was what we did when we, we didn't have a mentor at the time really speaking no. into my choices. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, withstanding the pressure of being the pastor's wife, we had a very gracious church community yep. and they were very accepting of the fact that I was practicing as a pharmacist and then as a lawyer um, that I, that I did work in the community. And I felt that was my way of paying it forward and, and, and just being out there to help people and, and help our local hospital. So, uh, so I would say that our, our church was very accepting and supportive. Um, yeah, they, they didn't ex- assert a lot of pressure, thankfully. Yeah, we had had a really, really great elder board community, that kind of thing. I would say the one thing we had to do early on was a model flip. So these were three very traditional rural churches. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. everything from like bake sales and bazaars and all yes. that stuff. We eventually killed sale, within man. a couple Bring of years. Back bake sales. Bring back bake sales. Yeah. But you know, the expectation was, and we heard this once, like, well, the previous pastor's wife, who by the way, was in her eighties, uh, would bring a dozen pies. It was actually 16. 16 wow. pies. So I walked okay, in, I go. walked in with my oh, wow. two pies that I slaved over, you know, uh-huh. in between work hours and yeah, and raising two young kids, <laughs> yeah. you know. And you I, show I up thought with two I pies. was I thought I was doing pretty well until yeah, I and then, oh, yeah, well, she used to bring 16. <laughs> it's like, well, go hire her back. That's yeah, fine. Exactly. So me. I felt very of you. Mm. And, and we didn't have a lot of modeling. Like we weren't in the charismatic tradition where you co-led the church mm. and, you know, not a whole lot of people had a dual professional couple that was becoming more common in the, in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands where you have double docs or double lawyers or that kind of thing. So it was kind of a new paradigm. I think our church did well. I think, I think you nailed it though earlier. Like what, what I wasn't good at, you know, hence the last 15 years of my life was setting boundaries, figuring out how to navigate my schedule. Uh, so I was working 12, 15, 18 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Uh, couldn't keep up. I was exhausted. And um, yeah, I tend more toward task. You tend more toward relationships. So that mm-hmm. was its own conflict vortex at home where you would want to just hang out. And I'm like, no, we got all this stuff to do. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a mess. Sure. Well, with ministry couples, obviously you talked about success, uh, entering a lot of problems or or bringing a lot of problems into the marriage. And it's, I often find as I coach leaders, success is disorienting because suddenly there are more demands you can give, you can give the same hole you were trying to fill suddenly isn't fillable in that Mm -hmm. Carrie, You've talked about your burnout before, um, we help leaders avoid burnout. And so what did that feel like? When you go back to that season where maybe burnout was coming on, what did that feel like? And if you had to go back, uh, call those warning signs. What was happening that you said, this is not healthy. I'm going down a bad road. Well, I didn't know it wasn't healthy until my body quit. Mm. So because, and I think what what I had just as you know, a performance addict was I had a lot of success at work. So if it wasn't going well at home, I could just throw myself back into my job. 
And as long as I put my foot on the gas pedal and it was up into the right, I was pretty happy. And so it was a good escape. And then one day my body just quit. But looking back on it now, I had people telling me, I burned out when I was 41. So that was like 15, 16 years ago. Uh, I, I guess 15. But uh, I, you know, people were telling me, you're going to burn out, you're going to burn out. And I didn't believe them because I thought weak people burned out. And I'm not weak, I'm strong. So I'm, I got this. Um, I would say looking back on it, like, uh, I was tired, mm-hmm. um, really tired. Mm-hmm. I, I was emotionally not healthy, like a short fuse. Mm-hmm. So, and that started to leak out into work too, where little things would bother me or I, I, I was very impatient, um, which is something I've been working on, <laughs> still working on it, right? Uh, I, what else? What else pre-burnout were the symptoms? Looking back on it, I could say like my passion was gone, uh, but that happened sort of after the fuse got tripped and, and uh, my body shut down. So uh, what, what about creativity? Th- was like, were sermons flat? Were you oh, I could, ideas? listen, God and I were great. We had, <laughs> we had a great relationship. We were praying. He was really happy with me. I, I could, I could crank out content, man. So nope, that was no problem. Now, once I burned out, uh, I never lost my faith, but like coming up with ideas was harder. Mm-hmm. What, what were the signs like from my mid thirties on that you would say, oh yeah, dude, you're, you're a sick puppy. <laughs> uh I think like in addition to the exhaustion Mm. you already mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was some degree of numbness. Yes. I I think you didn't have, you know, you weren't experiencing the highs or the lows. It was kind of a bland. I did have um, uh, like the the beginning, I've never been diagnosed with any of this stuff. So it's all totally amateur, but like the beginning of agoraphobia. You remember that day? Mm -hmm. I think we were going to your parents and the kids were in the car already in the garage and I hid in the powder room and I'm like, I can't go. I'm just peopled out. I'm peopled out. I can't handle any more people. And this was right at the point we probably passed, I don't know, maybe 500, 600 in attendance. So I couldn't know everybody by name. Everybody wanted a piece of me. And I'm just like, I've had my maximum mm-hmm. people fill and I just can't do it. And that was the first, it wasn't a panic attack. I don't think I've ever really had a panic attack from the way friends describe them. I don't think I've had that, but it was close. And, and that was definitely a sign. I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony, I was definitely, how did, how did the burnout kind of, once you say you understand that my body's quitting and I am burning out, how did that affect you and impact you that next season? It was a rough season for us, yeah. Alan, because I also went through a depression around the, the same time. Like our Double those depressed. seasons mm. overlapped. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that was a, uh, that was a struggle for us. Uh, but you were I, I great. Think, you were really think, good though, to me. That you were because we were both suffering. We had more compassion for each other. I think it mm-hmm. actually started to break that constant tension and frustration we were having because we, you know, we couldn't get through the conflict that seemed to keep like simmering under the surface and then erupting every once in a while. I think that we realized that we needed to support each other if we were going to get through that season. Mm-hmm. And so we we both tried to cover for each other so that you would have space yeah. when you needed it and and vice versa. You were so, very gracious and very understanding. Yeah. Yeah. That was I would say even though that was the the low in terms of how we were feeling, 
it was probably also the beginning of a turnaround for us. Wow. So would you go as far to say that burnout and depression was a gift to you guys? Now? Yes. Mm. I don't know about I, you. For me, 100%. Wow. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Yes. Mm. Yeah, one of the greatest teachers, you know, it's funny, 15 years on the other side, I think in my life is pre-burnout, post-burnout. It's like two different people. So many of the characteristics that were there, but I think that's the process theologically of sanctification and redemption, right? Sure. So a lot of that drivenness, Gordon McDonald in Order in Your Private World, I re-listened to that uh, last summer. You know, he talks about drivenness versus calledness. And I know he wrote that 30, 40 years ago or whatever, but it's just like mm-hmm. a, a direct window into and my he's soul. he's still coaching and mentoring pastors in the Northeast. Yeah, especially. yeah. he's become a friend. It's amazing. It's been, it's been great. And wow. so I want to get him back on my show to talk about just those two chapters, drivenness and calmness. Mm. Wow. Um, he's, he's great. And so I was driven now, you know, on my bad days, I'm driven on my better days, I'm called. And that's just the, the redemption of things. I'm still strong. Um, but it's, 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 you know, love always protects it always, um, Gosh, you know the Bible. <laughs> Why am I blanking on First Corinthians thirteen? Uh, always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Thank you. Okay. Sometimes I joke. Tony does know the Bible better than the preacher. So there you go. Well, guys, thanks for thanks for going there. I think it's really important to realize behind that we say burnout's not the end of your story. And to you guys, sounds like the beginning of that turn and that change. So take us from there. As things began to turn, what else shifted? What work did you guys have to put in? to see your marriage really go to the next level. What work mm-hmm. didn't we have to put in? It was hundreds of hours of counseling. Yes. Uh, lots of prayer. Counseling, mm-hmm. prayer. Lots of dialogue. Uh, God's word, of course. Uh, you know, I remember um, <laughs> I remember a message that Andy Stanley gave uh, that was so instrumental during that time. It would have been around the time of the, the burnout depression phase. Uh, where he talked about First Peter 5, uh, where it says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mm-hmm. And it was that, um, that message that God opposes the proud. Like for, you know, for, to the extent that pride is motivating me, I'm actually setting up God as an opponent Wow. And, and I've heard it said another way, too, that pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind. Wow. You're preaching, Tony. Come on. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. And it I think was, she is it the was preacher. That, yeah. <laughs> it was that posture of humility, like realizing that he shows favor to the humble. And I really needed to lean into what humility had to teach me what it had to teach me about handling emotions, what it had to teach me about not trying to control Carrie's emotions, what it had to teach me about, you know, all the ways, all the dysfunctional ways I'd learned to deal with life. Like, you know, that dogged self-reliance, but also self-condemnation and self-defensiveness, self-imprisonment in a Mm. sense, you know, when you have uh, self-limiting beliefs and you're clinging to them, you're just not going to go as far as God really wants you to go. Mm. So that was, that was huge for me. 
Yeah. I'd say for us, it was a lot of disciplines and habits that, you know, a lot of processing that, that whole emotional health journey that Pete Scazzaro, Rich Velotis write about that, uh, you know, lots of counseling, lots of like, Oh, Mm -hmm. that's my issues. And we saw, we saw a couple of different counselors over a number of years. And uh, again, I think that's sanctification. I think that's Mm -hmm. what that is. So it's a journey. It's going to be continuing for the next few decades, however long we're around. Uh, but I would say one of the things that really, really helped was owning our issues. So you started to own your stuff and our conversations became much less, well, you always and you never and far mm-hmm. more. Okay, what did I bring to that? And sometimes that's like a redo. It's like, you know, you start with the, well, how come you? Mm-hmm. And then a few minutes later, it's like, all right, well, here's where I blew it. So we learned to do that. But then, um, you know, we became empty nesters in our 40s. And I feel pretty young. I set a whole bunch of personal bests this year at 55 years old, like, you know, cycling. And and just yesterday, I hit a personal best on my running, which was awesome. Um, a year ago, I wasn't running, you know, and so I hit an all time best, which is great. <coughs> Pardon me. But uh, we found a lot of like, there's a lot of life ahead beyond when your kids leave home. And just we realized like, we're in this house together. And so we're kind of like getting the dating that we never had in law school now. And it could go on for decades. So you better like each other because, (laughs) you know, the reality for a lot of empty nesters, and, and we hit that a number of years ago with our kids leaving home and going to university and now being, you know, fully independent. But um, it's either you you split, and that is sadly a phenomenon. When the youngest goes to college, the parents break up. Sure. You become roommates where you have your life and I have my life. Or you actually become friends and partners and lovers and all that stuff. And so we really wanted the third option. So we do a lot of stuff together. I picked up hobbies that I don't like because you like them. Hmm. But now I enjoy now them. Like now them. I enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. So for our 30th, Tony wanted a canoe. And I'm like, would you, would you just, because she loves like camping and all that stuff. And and it's not fast <laughs> enough for you? Is that? Yeah, is that it's the not fast enough. Carrying? Not fast enough, man. Okay. Hey, I have a sea ray, okay? So, <laughs> so that works for me. And I, a big I like green egg and get out there. Got my big green egg. Okay, so the canoe. Mm-hmm. So so you said no. So the canoe. Not, so I'm like, oh, do we have to get something that's like camping and natural? <laughs> like, can't I just buy you jewelry? Uh, but no, I want a canoe. All right. So we went out and we got this canoe. It's a nice canoe. And we live right across the street from a lake. So we can just literally carry it, you know, portage it and carry awesome. it down to the water in two minutes. And it turned out I really like it. Like mm. we were, there were times we could have taken the sea ray out and it's like, no, let's take the canoe out. So <laughs> we're taking the canoe out and we do a lot of hiking. And then you bought a road bike a couple of years ago. Mm. And so you'll, you'll go with me. And so yeah. we're just having, and we travel together back. I'm sure travel will come back at some point, but you know, like all that stuff. So, so we are really that friendship that was there at the beginning is probably, I don't know, a hundred times deeper now. And, and just these, these are good days. Like when you're in, in quarantine and we've been sort of not quite in lockdown, but pretty isolated for the last year, that's been a great story. And we talk about that over and over again about, Oh, could you imagine if this happened 15 or 20 years ago? Like, You'd have to find the bodies. I don't know. Like it would have been really bad, right. you know. And and so now now it's you reap what you sow. And we didn't like the seeds we were getting, so we sowed new seeds. And they take years to germinate. Um, and it's not all perfect, but it's it's pretty. Like you said, from that bad to this good, mm, I would that's say beautiful. 
You can nuance it. You can, you can, you can tell the ugly. No, I, I just want to say that there was a time when we, our conflict was, was so bad and we were so frustrated and it had gone on for long enough that we had the, the signs, you know, the, the warning signs uh, that John Gottman talks about. He's the marriage, marriage researcher. He talks about criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling and contempt. And yeah, we went like check, 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 check. (laughs) And we, we only found out about those after we had gone through the, the lowest lows. Um, but I, I just want to speak to anyone who's in that hopeless place of wondering, you know, have I signed up for a lifetime of misery or is, is it even possible to find love again? And, and I, I do want to say that, yeah, it is possible. Like your emotions can change. Um, your emotions follow your obedience. Yeah. So when you take those first steps toward, you know, what can I do to own my part? Even, even if I only think that maybe I am 5% to blame, 10%, let's say it's a small part. Who cares? Let's not put a number on it. What is one thing that I can own and work on just to, you know, see if we can give this marriage a second try? Yeah, because for a long, well, for a while, I was 100% to blame for the problems in our relationship in your eyes. And and, and, you were about 90% (laughs) in my eyes. And we, we, we got past that. And I think, you know, you know, the research better than me, but Gottman, doesn't he say if you're four for four, like divorce is almost inevitable? Or that the couples don't make it? And so we just love to defy the odds. And um, we're, we're in a, a, just a really, really rich space. And so I would just say, give it time, do the work get healthy. See, and if you leave, you know, so let's say it didn't work out and I'm like, well, I'm going to find this dream girl and she's going to be amazing and she's not going to have any of the problems. But number one, that's not true. And number two, I bring the unresolved me into that relationship. And then I've got this new dynamic at work in my family, which makes it a hundred times more complicated. So I just, I just, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for where we've ended up and pretty excited about what's ahead as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been a long journey. And I, you know, I say that just as hope for people, it's like, and you know, one of the other things you said, Alan, like uh, the big pivot for me was when things were bad at home, I would turn to work because it's like, oh, I can win there and people respect me there. right? And and once in a while I get a raise there. I just keep getting demoted here at home. So, um, you know, but, but that's, I, I say it quite a bit these days to leaders. It's like, look, if you're winning at home, but you're losing, or if you're winning at work, but losing at home, you're losing. Right. And I really believe that like, you know, it's going okay at work. It's going great actually. But if I'm losing at home, if Tony is not cherished, loved, respected, if we're not in a good place, I'm losing. And I just say that to remind myself that this is, this is the ultimate thing. Cause you know, you can get fired from work. It can all disappear tomorrow. Uh, your assignment can change. There's so much that can happen. And, 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 you know, that brief year that I spent in law in Toronto, I saw a lot of people who were winning at work and losing at home. I mean, cheating on their spouse, uh, you know, lots of money, very unhappy. And I have a lot of empathy for that, but that's a, that's a tough road to hoe. Like that is, that is a tough gig. If that's your story. And I could see myself heading there and I'm like, no, 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 this is, I want the people closest to me to be the people who are most grateful for me and the people who have the best experience of me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working toward that end. 
That's good, man. I love that you guys are friends and just in you guys telling your story, it brings hope. I remember I, I got to spend time with the late, great Jan and Eugene Peterson you know, oh, looking at Flathead Lake. What and a privilege. They're, they're looking back to those times when they were in their 30s and they fought for that time together. They would go hiking, drop the kids off at school, go hiking and go birding and, you know, take this a picnic with them and they kind of, you know, gleamed at each other and looked in, in each other's eyes and then they would still go canoeing. So that's what I thought of that. Mm-hmm. Just find something that you can do together and experience that together. So good. I, say I, I so got many- a few minutes with him before he died, about a half hour to interview him. And he told that story about their Sabbath. And I wish I knew that. I wish I did that in my thirties. We didn't, mm-hmm. um, but we're doing it now. And it's super, super rich. I was thinking of that Saturday we went out for that six and a half K walk or whatever, the hike in the woods. And I was thinking about Jan and Eugene Peterson and doing that every week. And just sometimes the silence and just the power of being together and I mean, it was raining and slushy and the whole deal, but it, but it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful. Even, even at the end, they'd say, are there things that you'd love to change about the other one? And they're like, of course, you know, and just kind of, it was so fun to see they were friends still, you know, till yeah. the day mm-hmm. they both passed. Um, ministry leaders, any other maybe pain points that you see regularly hitting ministry leaders that we just want to talk about today on this podcast? One thing that stands out for me, Alan, is when we started out in ministry, I I think it's fair to say that we were both naive about, uh, you know, the real battle between good versus evil. And we, um, we ended up, you know, in this rough season, really having our eyes blinded to the impact of, you know, the enemy was playing us. We didn't realize it. Um, we would have our, our biggest blowout arguments on Saturday. And Always. it was it yeah. was painful, like mm. terribly painful for both of us. And then we ended up going to a ministry conference where our eyes were completely open to what's going on. So I would just say to anyone who's who's maybe comes from a background that we came from where we just didn't make a connection between what we were reading in the new Testament and the reality of our ministry, just be aware. Um, and sorry, you want to, yeah, no, I was just going to say my rule on that is if, is if you've exhausted natural explanations, don't rule out the supernatural. So it's not like, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that fight was the devil or whatever, and that that's not it. But I think we go to one extreme or another. We either think everything is spiritual warfare or nothing is spiritual warfare. And I would say we encounter it minimally today, but in that battle, like at the bottom, Mm -hmm. it seemed to be a daily epic struggle. So don't, um, and you know, God knew what was ahead. Like I didn't know what was ahead. I didn't know that we would eventually Mm -hmm. be able to serve so many leaders. And I didn't know you had a book in you, especially Mm -hmm. on this. You know, and and we didn't we didn't know that God would use us in the future. And so, if there really is a, a force of evil, a personal force of evil, of course, you know, it would make sense to try to take that out. The other thing I would say is put a lid on work. Uh, I burned out long before the internet became what it is today, and before there was social media, and before people had eleven inboxes and your phone was buzzing. I mean, I shut down two phone calls that came into you. While we were here, I have my phone on perpetual do not disturb. And I think you have to you have to get to a point where 
you know, your work is never done. Your ministry is never done. When's it good enough? When's the sermon finished? When are all the people reached? If you're running a business, you're an entrepreneur. Like, when's the design perfect? When's, when is the team really built into? And the answer is never. So what you have to do is close the laptop, shut off the phone, and relax and have a life. Before I burned out, I had no hobbies. Now we go boating, canoeing, you know, mm-hmm. run, we got a powerboat. We go uh, cycling. I go running. Um, and I probably have more time off and I get way more done. Like when I'm running around like, like a chicken with my head cut off, mm-hmm. uh, I was probably producing a tenth of what I can produce today. But that comes, I just interviewed, um, had a chance to meet... Um, Rob Palenka from the Lakers, GM of the Lakers. And so we were talking about Kobe's habits. Like Kobe sleeps 10 or 12 hours a night and like spends all this time. uh, Sorry, not Kobe. Sorry, uh, LeBron James. I'm not a basketball guy. So he was Kobe's agent and now LeBron James. LeBron James spends 10 to 12 hours a day resting because when he explodes onto the court, um, you know, he needs all that rest. And what I see is a lot of ministry leaders and just leaders in general working 18, 20 hour days, seven days a week, completely exhausted. They're never really off. And as a result, they're never really on. And uh, I just think that's a deadly yeah. trap and a horrible way. To I call that the ironic 70% because you're kind of on, you're kind of 70% working all the time mm-hmm. and kind of never resting either. And like you say, Carrie, so ironically, you can't do, you know, Cal Newport talks about deep work. You can't actually yeah. produce anything of value. And so ironic that that's actually preceding a lot of burnout is that more, that more we've got to do. Um, man, guys, so helpful. I'm going to go at least a few more hours uh, on this. Um, but obviously, we in 2021, fingers crossed, please, Lord, we hope to kind of exit this pandemic and leave it behind us it has left a mark on marriages. Uh, Divorce rates are up. We're seeing that quantitatively, qualitatively, all the studies. We're all hearing friends devastating um, in that. What are some of the factors that you think have really complicated this for married couples besides homeschooling our kids and doing a terrible job? (laughs) Yeah, we didn't have to do that. What are some other factors? There's just that isolation. People fundamentally need community. And, and when, when I say community, I mean a few people around us who we are unfiltered with, we're close to, we can share uh, our burdens, you know, share our celebrations, but, you know, people who we really track closely with. Um, one, of the, one of the danger signs I actually saw with people going through separations was um, that where one of the spouses was isolated, you know, where they gradually had hmm. lost their close connection with family or friends, it was so difficult to get through the kinds of negotiations we had to get through. And uh, often they were more vulnerable in the sense that they were were making decisions that didn't make sense Mm -hmm. for themselves or for the family, particularly where there were kids involved. So uh, I would say at, at this stage where, you know, we've got COVID and we've got disrupted routines, not as much connection, whatever people can do, whatever leaders can do to just foster connections and keep, keep their eye on people so that they're not becoming isolated. Or, you know, the other phenomenon that, um, that I just raise as a red flag is that um, if a family is actually going through divorce, they need support 
so much. Like mm-hmm. each member of the family needs it. And in our church, in our, um, our, our starting point groups, it's like alpha, you know, I've had people come back to me and say, well, you know, I left the church years ago when our family went through a divorce, but no one reached out to me or it was like we were shunned. And uh, I know divorce is a painful time and, you know, people have, people struggle to know what to say when other people are going through pain, but I would just raise, raise the need for community for all of us to be in a meaningful community and have a sense of belonging. Uh, I would raise that for leaders. Mm, Wow. So good. So yeah, I would, I would say my favorite metaphor for what we've gone through over the last year is the lake got drained and you can see what's actually at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I look back, you know, and there's a lot of ugly stuff there that, that, that you didn't even know was there. And so when you can't go out anymore and you can't take a vacation and life isn't as busy and you can't do the kids six nights a week and, you know, you're just together 24-7, you see what's at the bottom of the lake. And I remember in my 30s, pre-burnout, I had a really hard time sitting still. Like if Tony and the kids were gone and I was home alone, which was rare, I would put music on, I would start to fidget. And it goes back to one of my all-time favorite quotes, Blaise Pascal, who said, man's chief problem is is his inability to sit quietly alone in his room. And I've gotten a lot better with silence because I've gotten a lot better with my own shortcomings over the last 15 years. And that means more confession, more reflection. It's what Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And yeah, 2021 is coming back, but here's the trap and here's the danger. Society is going to reopen. Uh, Things are going to get busy again. You can get some semblancy of normal or normalcy, and you can go back to the office, back to school, back to sports, back to whatever, and you will ignore all that stuff at the bottom of the lake. And what that means is that's going to catch up with you later, or your relationship is never going to be what it could be. And so I think our lake got drained a long time ago. And so now when it got drained again, it's like, oh, it's not that bad down here. There's that and there's that. So let's deal with that. But it wasn't this toxic dump that it was 15 years ago. So I would just say, uh, actually use the time remaining to deal with the deep issues and you will have a much, much, much better uh, future moving forward because those things are there, whether you feel them or not. And they're going to show up in very hidden ways, in frustrating ways, in ways that you're like, yeah, I don't even know why we broke up or I don't know why we're not friends anymore. I don't know why I got fired. Like that's how that stuff manifests itself. It's a great analogy. All right, Carrie, not to generalize here, but I may force you to generalize a little bit. Uh, Imagine you're speaking to wives here. You're a really intimidating speaking event and Tony pushes you out on stage. You're there by yourself. There's thousands of women uh, and you are speaking to wives what would you say to wives that may help them understand their, their husband five or 10 or 15% better? We're more afraid than you think we are. Wow. Give us a hug. Wow. That's good. All right. So, Tony, I'm done. What would you say? End of talk. Then Tony or, or then Gary walks off, you know, from his five second mm-hmm. talk and you walk on and there's, you know, 3000 husbands looking at you. What, what would you say to the husbands? I think I'd have to say it's hard to sit with your wife's emotions um, to really be present for them because I think in many cases, um, just in general, you know, wives tend to emote uh, 
more than more than their male partners in maybe some yeah in some marriages that's true <laughs> maybe it's true again. in 75 yeah. percent of yeah. marriages sure. probably not so true in our marriage uh-huh. but um but a real key to um connecting with each other and building rebuilding or building a, a bond is your ability to just accept your spouse's emotions for what they are and not dismiss them, ignore them, uh, jump over them to problem solving, um, you will feel closer to each other and you will actually um, get rid of some of the surface conflict and tension that's going on. If you can just let your partner have their emotions, just let them have them and and actually be a student and acknowledge them. Wow, I I can see why you're so angry about that meeting today. That sucks. I've already Sounds solved like it. it. I terrible. get paid to solve problems. <laughs> you're right. But, but you're yeah, right. if you're venting to me and I respond that way rather than saying, "Oh, well, did you talk to X? Well, did you make did you have that conversation with with Bob afterward? You know, it's if I jump straight into problem solving and completely ignore the emotion, it doesn't do anything for our closeness. That's and what good. you really need in a in a marriage is that attunement, you know, that feeling that you have each other's back, that you're there for each other. And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. If there's if there's emotions that go way over the top, like there's just way too much anxiety, well, then maybe there's a need for, for some counseling. Uh, there's a role for someone else to step in and give some guidance. Um, but in general, we, we do need to be there for each other and for each other's emotions. Mm, wow. Well, guys, thank you for that. Again, Tony, congrats on your book, Before You Split. Mm-hmm. Find what you really want for the future of your marriage. How about we end this way? I can tell you guys are each other's biggest fans. So Carrie, you're going to be her PR manager right now. And you're just going to tell the world why they need to go buy this book, why it changes their life, and why Tony was the one to write it. No pressure, but go. Oh, okay. Genesis story. We're driving up the highway and Tony's been practicing in divorce law and she has a heart to keep couples together, but by the time they hire a lawyer, uh, most of them are probably not staying together, right? You're, you're at the lawyer stage. Sure. And I'm like, hon, what have you been learning? And she just starts rhyming off a bullet list. Like, well, beware the cheerleaders. Your friends will be, <laughs> you know, giving you bad advice. And um, there's a gravitational pull towards separation. And I'm like, I'm almost pulling over the car going, you need to write you're, this down. You're in content creator mode. You're like, that's chapter three. I'm in content creator. I'm <laughs> solving seven. the problem. I'm spotting a book. And I'm like, you need to write those down. Write those down right now. Like that is stuff I've never thought of that you have a unique seat into. So the book is a mixture of our story and those insights from sitting with hundreds of couples, all anonymized, of course. So it's not like, you know, we're it's telling themes. stories. It's I themes. write stories based yeah. on themes. So anyway, and and I just think it's a rare contribution. And, you know, if you're thinking of splitting, it's always harder on the other side than you imagined. And if you're thinking of staying, it's better on the other side than you imagined. And I think Tony's just, it's, she has a beautiful way of articulating that. And uh, we have a, a happy story to tell, but we also walk through all the mud with everybody too. So we get it. We get it. It's hard, but it can be better. 
Wow. Well, thank you guys for how you guys serve. You've just entered my top five power couples. So congrats. Welcome to the list. <laughs> you guys are I amazing. The list. That's I love the ministry you guys have, but probably even more than that, I love your guys' friendship. So thank you guys for your vulnerability. And Tony, I hope this book has a massive impact. I hope it helps a lot of couples. Me too. Thank you. So long.